open them up with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Also, if you have any cell phones tonight, this would be a good time to do that. (laughs) Revelation chapter 20. The millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom, that's the study tonight. Working our way through the book of Revelation. And we're nearing the end now, really coming down to the last few chapters. And what we talked about and looked at last week in chapter 19 was the return of Christ. Chapter 19, we saw Jesus return. We saw him defeat his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. And now in chapter 20, we see him establishing an earthly kingdom. And I'm going to pray one more time and ask the Lord just to speak to our hearts tonight out of this passage. And then we'll get started and and look at the text. Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, as we study these things, we are encouraged by the promises. Lord, even as we sang that hymn, Great Faithfulness, Great is Thy Faithfulness, talks about strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Lord, it it is the future that our hope reside in. And the future that you have promised, Lord, a future and a hope. And even as we look tonight, Lord, may our hearts begin to already be kind of uh, residing in that place. The Bible says, Lord, that we are not citizens of the earth, but really our citizenship is in your kingdom, in eternal things. And so tonight, Lord, as we look at these promises, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened and that you would minister to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing we'll notice here in verses 1 through 3, as the Lord returns, the first thing he does is binds Satan. Look with me, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Well, we notice the name given to the devil. We see all of his names, really. He's referenced as the dragon, the serpent of old, reminding us even of his temptations there and tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. He is the devil, devil meaning slanderer, liar, accuser of the brethren. And he is Satan, also referencing that he is our adversary. There's coming a day when he will be bound. Notice an angel that comes from heaven. And it's really, there's no struggle, there's no battle, there's no contest. This angel that comes with the key to the bottomless pit immediately apprehends him and casts him in to the bottomless pit, bound for a thousand years. This pit is the same pit that was referenced in Revelation chapter 9. You may remember when the fifth trumpet was blown, the the bottomless pit was opened up and it unleashed from the pit uh, many, many demons that came out and tormented men like the torment of a scorpion sting. 
You may remember that was one of the plagues during the time, during the, the tribulation. Well, that same bottomless pit is now Satan and his demons are going back into this place, a place where they are bound and a place where they cannot uh, deceive the nations any longer. Now, this whole thousand years, I want to talk a little bit about that because it, it's really something of a pivotal or crossroad, crossroad point in understanding end times. How you interpret this particular passage will affect the way you view other end time passages. And I'll explain it here in just a minute. A couple of questions that you have to ask yourself as you look to this passage in Revelation chapter 20. The first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, is Revelation chapter 20 the chronological order of events immediately following Revelation 19? Now, you remember in some places in the book of Revelation, we get kind of this chronological display of events and then uh, a kind of a retelling of the events from a different perspective or, or a re, uh, re-summarizing of things. Not everything in the book of Revelation is necessarily, you know, chronological order. Generally it is, but sometimes the, you know, John would see a vision of another, you know, a little more detail on what was happening in, say, one of the judgments. And that's a question that we need to ask here, because if this is, in fact, a chronological step in what's, what, what God has planned, then immediately after his appearing comes this thousand years, or what we refer to as the millennial, uh, Latin, mille for a thousand, annal for years, millennium, a thousand year period. So that's one question. Is this the next step in chronological order or is this rather just a kind of retelling of the whole church age period and just referencing a thousand years as more of a symbolic gesture of completeness of time? That's that brings me to the second question. How do you view the thousand years? Is it is it literally a thousand years or is it just a symbolic language, you know, a figure of speech? The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, we know that he owns the cattle on all the hills, more than just a thousand. But that's just a figure of speech saying he owns the cattle on all all the hills. The day unto the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. Was Peter trying to give us a mathematical equation or was he simply saying God references time different than you and I? So you can understand that this, this is an important question because it will determine how we interpret this particular passage. Well, what we try to do is interpret Scripture as often as we can. We try to interpret it literally. Unless we can't interpret literally. Now, in some cases, you know, like I said, there, there's passage that clearly... The Bible is talking metaphorically. Well, then we don't force a literal interpretation. But otherwise, if it's not obvious, we really try to interpret the passages literally. So my preference is, of course, to interpret this literally. It also seems to be a very consistent flow of events and immediately following then Satan is bound. Well, that would make sense to me. Christ is returning. The first thing he does is bind Satan. So I think this is a chronological event, and I think a thousand years is literally represented here. And we refer to it as the 
millennial or thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. He's coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. There are different views, and that's why I went through this technical uh, bit with you to, to, so that you would understand there are some different views in the church. I want to at least uh, mention a couple of them so that you understand how some of these things get interpreted. The re- I believe that Christ is going to return and then establish the millennium, just as if we would read this chronologically and literally. That means I am what's called a pre-millennial viewpoint. Pre meaning before the millennium, Christ returns. Pre-millennial. Christ returns, then the millennium. This is the position of Calvary chapels in general. This is what we embrace. This is uh, a very common embrace in the evangelical church. But it's not the only view. There is also what is called the post-millennial now, if premillennial means Christ returns before the millennial, millennium, postmillennial would be Christ returns after the millennium, right? And that view sees really the thousand years may or may not be literal, but rather they see that Christ will return at the end of this millennial time, and during the time the church will actually help usher in the, uh, the golden age of the millennium. The view here is that, you know, Christ began the church somewhere in church history. The millennium will begin, and the church, through its spreading of the gospel, through its influence in the world, will gradually begin to dominate the world and its culture, and will eventually kind of, Christ will be returning to a golden age or really a victorious church, already kind of establishing Christianity as the main influence in the earth. And that's a post millennial view. And I suppose that is possible, but it is certainly uh, not anything that we see happening today. So I don't take that view as as a uh, you know a real option because it just doesn't seem to be the case. I don't see Christianity kind of taking over the world. In fact, I see just the opposite. I see the days getting darker and darker, and Christianity being actually contended for. So that, but that is one of the views, and they would see this thousand years uh, either starting sometime during the church age or maybe not literally a thousand years. There is also what's called the amillennial view, ah meaning no millennium. They don't actually think there will be a literal thousand years. They look at the thousand years merely as a figurative way to express a complete amount of time. And what they believe is that Satan was actually bound at the cross. When Jesus died upon the cross, Satan was defeated, and we know that he was. But they believe also that he was defeated and bound, and his influence in the world has been greatly diminished and reduced, and that we are now living in the millennium. We are actually in the millennial time right now, and millennium doesn't really mean thousand years. It just means an amount of time following Christ's crucifixion to his return and so they see no real literal millennium but rather and so when they look at this passage they don't see this as a chronological next event they see this really as a recapping of the church age and that satan has been bound and the church is really living out the blessings of the millennium and the promises that were made to israel concerning a millennial kingdom, are really now being spiritually lived out through the life of the church. 
Now, this is a very popular view, and it has some very strong points. Probably one of the weakest points for me is that it, you know, as one commentator said, if Satan is bound today, he must have a very long chain (laughs) because he sure seems to be acting in the earth. He sure seems to be resisting the church. He sure seems to be about and not really not not what this passage says, you know, kind of shut up, sealed up that he would deceive the nations no longer. I have not seen that through human history, not since Christ's cross. Even though Christ did defeat him at the cross, the actual working out of that victory is yet to come. So I I embrace the premillennial view. And I want to tell you, even in my own study over the years, I've wrestled with some of this. Uh, I'm presenting to you now a very kind of abbreviated version of these other views, but there are some very, very strong views that, you know, very uh, persuasive views that are held by some. Many of the Reformed churches embrace an amillennial view. The Roman Catholic Church, I believe, embraces an amillennial view. But one of the things that probably um, really pushed me over the edge as I kind of had to work through this myself were the passages found in the Old Testament that actually prophesied of this kingdom age. And I want us to look at a few of those tonight. And again, I hope you'll bear with me. I know this might be a little more technical and detailed, but I I think it's important that we we know the, the, the really importance of how you view this passage. And I want to give you some strength to to what I'm trying to uh, persuade you with tonight. If you would, as you hold your place there, I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. And I'm going to reference several pa- uh, passages in the book of Isaiah. There are other prophecies in other, by other prophets, but we'll just look at Isaiah's prophet, prophecies tonight since they are some of the strongest. And for me, as I said, this, is, this was probably the linchpin. As I, as I looked at these prophecies and... You'll see as I read them, I came to the, to the conclusion that, you know, these are so specific and they seem to spell out such a, a very clear picture of what the kingdom age will look like. We've never seen anything like this in the earth. And to think that they are just somehow being spiritually fulfilled in the church, it just didn't satisfy me. I just I'd read those passages and, I, you know, I guess you could spiritualize it, but then I guess you could spiritualize anything. Where do you stop? Where do you draw the line? Where do you, you know, where do you spiritualize a passage and where do you take the literal interpretation of the passage? I prefer to take it literally if we can. And with that in mind, let's look here. Isaiah chapter 2. Look with me just the first few verses here. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Now, we've not seen that yet, that that we don't have all nations flowing to the house of the Lord. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. There will be no more reason for swords. And their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So there is a prophecy here from Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the latter days, there is going to be this this time of great peace upon the earth. And that from Jerusalem, the law of the land, the law of the world will be will be sent out and there will be no more war. And so the spears will be turned into gardening tools. And we've just not seen anything like that, have we? We've not actually seen a fulfillment like this. And to spiritualize that, oh, well, that's just meaning some kind of a spiritual way that the church is walking and living at peace and. It just didn't satisfy me. No, I think I would look for a literal fulfillment here. And the question is, when? It hasn't happened. When will it happen? Well, I believe it will happen in Revelation chapter 20 when Christ comes and establishes a thousand years of his reigning upon the earth. That's when that will be fulfilled. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 11. Work your way to the right. Starting in verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we believe this is, of course, a messianic prophecy concerning Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Well, that sounds a little bit like what we read last week, doesn't it? Righteousness shall be the bell of his, belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now, it goes on to describe a time on the earth of what what he will usher in. Look at verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the wa- as the waters cover the sea. Boy, that sounds like a different time, doesn't it? That kind of peace, even nature itself, even the animals on the earth. During this time, God, that, that this righteous one, this branch, comes and ushers in this kind of kingdom. It will be like nothing the earth has ever known or seen. I'm looking for a little, literal fulfillment of that. I don't believe that's just some spiritual kind of yeah, you know, life in the church. I think rather this will be a literal time upon the earth. And the question is when? And this is, as I've mentioned before, this is what the disciples were troubled with when, with Jesus. They, they knew these passages. They knew the promises of the Messiah. And you can remember, they asked him, now, Jesus, when, when are you going to set up the kingdom? When are we going to see the Messiah fulfilling these promises that have been made concerning him? And Jesus said, you know, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, those things that God has established. So 
Some of this church age, these 2,000 years from his first coming to his second, really was hidden in a mystery. And only now that we're in the church age and these scriptures are beginning to open up, we begin to understand the fullness of what God has planned. All right, stay with me in Isaiah. Go to chapter 30. So these, I'm I'm trying to show you, it's not just some isolated kind of, you know, off-the-wall passages. This is a real theme that you begin to see concerning the Messiah and his rule. Uh, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers, your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and your ornament of molten images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, Get away. Then, Verse 23, Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the, uh, of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In the day your cattle will fee, feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the, the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. So you see, again, this pouring out of blessing, even the earth itself is going to change. Uh, Fruitfulness of the land is going to be greatly, greatly increased. And even the sun and moon and the light will will be different during this time couple more passages. Well, let me just jump to, jump to Isaiah 65. And I'll skip a couple here. I think you're getting the picture. Isaiah 65. Look at verse 20. Isaiah 65:20 Nor more no more shall an infant infant from there live but a few days nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days for the child shall die 100 years old but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed they shall build houses and inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit they shall not build and another inhabit they shall not plant and another eat for as the days of a tree so shall be the days of my people And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So you see this even lengthening of life. And 
it's going to be a completely different time. Okay, back to Revelation chapter 20. I believe this is when he this is when these things will take place at the end of the the end of the great tribulation when Jesus Christ returns he will come and he will establish a kingdom first upon the earth and he will bring his saints as we saw he brings his people with him his saints will be with him and that will include you and I but he will come and bind satan and he will be bound and the saints will reign look with me now Revelation 20 in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So he's coming to set up his kingdom and there are going to be many who reign with him in this kingdom. You know, the Apostle Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And talking about the time when, when God would, would set up his kingdom, that, that the saints would rule and reign with him for this thousand years. He gives us a little reference as to who will be here. I saw thrones and they that sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. Souls of those who had lost their life during the tribulation, those who had been martyred. But also those that come with him as he comes from heaven. Remember, this will include all the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the raptured saints, the tribulation saints. These are all partakers of the first resurrection. First resurrection meaning first in order of the two resurrections that he's going to reference here and not not in uh, before the end of the chapter. So this first resurrection really consists of. All those who died in the Lord in the Old Testament, all those that died since Christ has been crucified, and all those that are alive and translated when he comes for them in the rapture, and those that die during the time of tribulation. All those who die in faith. The Bible references those individuals always as saints, those set apart and holy unto God. They will come, and you and I will be a part of that. Those of us that are believers in Christ, we will be those that will reign as priests of God, worshipers and ministers and ruling and reigning with him. Well, following this thousand year period, there will be one last rebellion. Satan will come again and be released for a short period of time. Look with me, verses seven through ten. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. 
The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan has been bound for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, he is released for this short rebellion. He comes out amazing. Satan has been captive now for a thousand years. He's had a thousand years to think about his rebellion against God. And as soon as he is released, he immediately proceeds in his, which has now become his nature, to continue to deceive and rebel against God. A lot of questions about this I've heard people ask, and I think probably even in my own heart I've asked, Lord, why? Why turn him loose again, you know? I mean, and who's he going to deceive? I mean, I thought at this point, you know, rebellion has been crushed. Who's going to be left, you know, to to kind of, that he's going to be able to deceive? There's a lot of different views. And this is where the premillennial view can get a little, to be honest, you know, complicated. And this is one of the weaknesses that some of the uh, opponents will point out is that, you know, the, the premillennial view just, it's not real clear on who, how these things work out. And it isn't. But it's not impossible to discern who these might be. Remember, when Christ returns, there's going to be millions of people upon the earth. Not everyone dies during the tribulation. And many, many are coming to faith. We know that. That's part of what we see through the whole tribulation. The 144,000 that go out as witnesses. Much of national Israel has been restored to faith along with many Gentile nations. So during this time of tribulation, many, many are coming to faith. When Christ returns, they are here. But they are not yet translated. This is not a, when Christ returns, it's not a rapture. He's already raptured and translated his church. So there are going to be literally millions of Christians upon the earth that are going to continue to populate the earth during the next thousand years. As we, as we read, a child will you know, live to be 100 years old. If anybody dies before 100, it'll be like, wow, he, was, he lived a short life. So you'll have a thousand years and extended life and Guess what will happen? Men will continue to be men. Some of these men that are, and women that are born during that time, they will be vulnerable and they will not come to faith in Christ and they will follow Satan in his rebellion. And it's as if the Lord uses this as one last purging of those that would rebel against him. And it demonstrates something else, that even, you know, oftentimes men consider themselves to be victims of their own environment. Well, you know, I would have known the Lord, or I would have followed the Lord if, if it weren't for my family, if it weren't for this, if it weren't for my circumstance, if it weren't for all of the, you know, I'd have been a better Christian. But what we will see here in this millennium, even in the best of circumstances, even in what, what will be almost like heaven on earth, Christ ruling and governing and, and peace and you know, no more wars and no more friction amongst men and amongst even with the animals, a complete a setting of peace and you know, harmony. Even in that setting, men will rebel because it's in man to rebel. We are by nature sinners. And so even in a perfect setting, men will have to understand that they need a Savior, that they need Jesus. And without him, they will actually follow Satan 
in his one last rebellion. Well, we see that the rebellion is crushed. God simply devours them and destroys and casts the devil into the lake of fire. As we mentioned last week, Hades is that holding place waiting uh, for judgment. That's where the unbelievers go and reside. The lake of fire, what we would call hell, is actually that place that was created for Satan and his demons, his, his followers, but also it will ultimately be a place of eternal judgment for unbelievers. We know that the Antichrist and his prophet are already there. They got put in there right when Christ returned, but he simply bound Satan for a thousand years, lived out the, the millennial reign, and then let Satan loose, and now the final judgment is in place. Satan first goes into the lake of fire. And we'll finish here tonight, verses 11 through 15. We see the final judgment called oftentimes the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment. This is God coming in a great white throne. And you'll notice that even heaven and earth pass away. It says there in verse 11 that uh, the earth and the heaven fled away. His presence actually removed the heavens and the earth as we know it. And this New eternal judgment is being set. Hold your place there. Look at this another view in Daniel chapter 7. He saw this day as well and gives a description in the Old Testament of, of it also. Book of Daniel. you get there. Daniel chapter 7. You'll see the similarity of what he saw in comparison to what John saw. Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I've always, that verse 10 has always, whenever I read it, there's like, I get a little shudder in my heart, you know, that the court was set and the books were opened. That, that you know, 
that feeling of standing before the eternal judge and nowhere to hide, no excuses, no more time. The court has sat and the books are opened. And those that don't know Christ, those whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life, they're going to be judged by their works. It says the books are going to be opened. Turn with me back to Revelation 20. Those books are going to have recorded the works of men. The works, the thoughts, every deed. Every man is going to stand. Every man that is not in Christ is going to stand. This is, a, this, is a resur- this is the second resurrection now. This is the resurrection of the unrighteous dead, the unbelievers. All those that have died throughout history, they are currently in a holding place called Hades. You say, it says even death and Hades are going to offer up. Those who died in the sea, all are going to be resurrected. They're going to come back to life and be resurrected only to stand before this court. And the books are going to be opened. And because they have not come to faith in Christ, because they have no mediator, they have no one to atone for their sins or their deeds, they're going to have to stand on their own merit before the Lord. And every thought, every deed, every motive of the heart is going to be weighed. And trust me, they are going to be found wanting. They are going to be judged. It is a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of of a living God. Earth and heaven will flee away. Reminds us of Peter's comments about the earth being the current earth and heavens being destroyed, making way and room for a new heaven and earth, which we'll look at next week in chapter 21. But there will be no place to hide. This second death is judgment, and they are all thrown into that lake of fire. And we know that that is a place of torment forever and ever. This is not an annihilation as some would teach, but rather it looks to be an eternal judgment. That place that men will choose, having rejected what God would have chosen for them, which would have been mercy, which would have been eternal life, which would have been reigning with him as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom. And then what we will see in chapters, the closing chapters of this book, we'll see that even after the millennium, God has wonderful things planned. Incredible things for his people. Well, again, I know tonight was a little bit of a kind of a technical look, but, you know, there's still a pretty good, pretty good gospel message in there. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know if you're here tonight. Um, I hope you're here tonight because you know the Lord and you love the Lord and you're interested in what his word has to say about the future. But you may be here tonight because you are searching for the Lord. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him. You know, I'm not one to try and use scare tactics to encourage people to come to the Lord. But I do. I must speak frankly. I must speak honestly. There is a day. There is a day in court. That every man apart from Christ, the Bible gives promise for those in Christ. We shall not be judged. We are not destined for wrath. Man, I, I, I am so glad I'm not, going to be at, I'm not going to be at the great white throne. I'll be a spectator, but I won't be. The books aren't going to be opened on me. 
My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But those that that don't know the Lord, understand what you're risking. You're, You're betting on your own righteousness to get you by when you stand before the Lord. That somehow, because you're, you, you think, well, I'm a good person, or well, I'm not as bad as so many, or, you know, somehow that that is, that when the books are opened on you, you're going to be able to state your case, and God's going to say, yeah, well, you know what? Shoot, you're not so bad. Come on. I'm not going to judge you for your sins and your rebellion. It's not the way God, that's not the way a holy and righteous judge will, will rule, nor should he. No, those, the court will be set, the books will be opened, and you don't want to be standing there on your own merit. You need a Savior. If you don't know the Lord tonight, you need to come to Him because He wants to forgive you. He loves you. This is not what, the lake of fire is not what He wants. The lake of fire is what you will choose if you reject that which He offers tonight. He offers His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and shed His blood that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. And for those who put their faith in that message, their names are entered into the Lamb's book of life. Remember the disciples? I'm thinking of the disciples. Tony, I'm going to ask you to come on up and play a little for me. We're going to close here. I'm going to pray in just a second. But you remember the disciples after they were so excited, Jesus sent them out and uh, on their kind of their, their ministry work, and they went out and they... People were getting healed, and they were casting out demons. They came back so excited. Oh, Jesus, man, we're so excited. Even the demons are subject to us. We're out there, man. We're we're spiritually, you know, we're spiritual giants in the land, and we're just out there. And and Jesus said, you know, don't rejoice in that. Let me tell you something to rejoice in. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Spiritual exploits or, you know, even ministry exploits, As wonderful as they are, nothing is as precious, nothing is as valuable as having our salvation secure in Christ. Let's pray tonight. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. And Lord, as we are gathered here this evening, as we look, Lord, just at the current affairs of the world, as we look at the political landscape, as we look at Israel and some of the nations that are beginning to gather against her, as we look at even the climate changing, Lord, in our own culture and in the world, what we see, Lord, is the beginning of what we believe is fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible said that Israel would be gathered again to her land, and so she is. The Bible said that there would be nations, a confederacy of nations that would come and join against her. And so we see they are beginning to do that. The Bible said that there would be an end time one world government. And Lord, we're already beginning to see the shapings of that. So we know just by the signs that, Lord, the end must be near prophecy being fulfilled in our day. And Lord, as sure as those prophecies are going to come to pass, so will these prophecies concerning the tribulation, concerning the millennium, and concerning the ultimate great white throne judgment. They too, those days will come. And Lord, I can't help but think of those that don't know you 
in a saving way. And my heart goes out to him tonight, Lord. For those of us that know you, Lord, I pray that these things would encourage us. I pray that these things would strengthen our faith. I pray that we would leave tonight, Lord, with just a little bit more of heaven in our hearts. And that that would be, Lord, a a real encouragement and blessing to us. Giving us the strength to face whatever, Lord, because our citizenship is in heaven. But, Lord, for those that don't know you, I just want to give an opportunity for them to respond. Lord, it's no mystery. They simply need to come by faith and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. They simply need to come and confess their sins and receive the love and mercy that you offer. So tonight, Lord, as we close, I want to give an opportunity. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, I want to pray for you. If you're ready to invite the Lord Jesus into your life and to accept him as your Savior, And ask Him to forgive you of your sins tonight. I would love to pray with you. Or if you're here tonight and you need to come back to the Lord, maybe maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe you've fallen away from Him. Maybe you're, you're not sure where you stand with Him tonight. Then I would invite you to come and recommit yourself to Him and allow Him to cleanse and renew you afresh. If you're here tonight and you need to come to the Lord for the first time or rededicate your life to Him, would you raise your hand so that I can see it here tonight and I will pray for you. God bless you, sir. Any others? God bless. Over here on my left, I see you, ma'am. Anyone else beside these two? Now let me pray for these two that have responded and then we'll close in worship. Lord, I thank you for these hearts that have responded. And Lord, I ask that you would touch them and meet them here tonight. And Lord, the good news is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we do not have to stand and give an account because our sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Our iniquities you remember no more. Our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west. We no longer have to be in fear of judgment, but rather we live in hope of salvation. So I pray that you would encourage these two tonight, Lord, with that that peace. Forgive them of their sins as they put their faith in Jesus. Renew them by your spirit and fill them and strengthen them to live for you. And may they live with a confidence now and a hope that you love them and that you're with them and that their sins and iniquities you're no longer holding against them, but now they can live free by grace in your Spirit. Fill them, Lord, and renew them, I pray. And we rejoice with them and all of heaven tonight and thank you for these things in Jesus' name.